Welcome to Private Market Talks, a Proskauer podcast. I'm your host, Peter Anteshek. Today, I have a very special episode. I'm joined by Tina Fordham, a geopolitical strategist and advisor. Tina was the first chief global political analyst on Wall Street and previously head of global political risk at Eurasia Group. She has over 20 years of experience advising senior leaders from prime ministers and three-star generals, including the UK Ministry of Defense, to C-suite executives, the United Nations, and institutional investors and capital allocators about the implication of global political, security, and socioeconomic developments. In 2022, Tina founded Fordham Global Foresight, an independent consultancy. Tina takes a holistic data-driven approach. She focuses on breaking down the complexity of geopolitics and provides actionable, forward-looking guidance. And I can tell you from personal experience, her discussions and presentations are incredibly informative and help provide an analytical framework for assessing geopolitical risk. I was able to catch up with Tina to speak with her in person in Key Biscayne, Florida, where she was speaking with industry leaders. During our conversation, Tina discusses the tectonic global and domestic political shifts, how investors have to learn to firewalk, and her must-read books for those wanting to better understand the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. I think you'll find our conversation to be very unique. I only wish I had more time. If you wish to learn more about Tina, her analytical frameworks, her deep dive research, master classes, and other information, you should go to tinafordham.com. We'll put that link in our show notes. I also highly recommend you sign up for her informative newsletter. So without further delay, I'm very pleased to welcome Tina Fordham to Private Market Talks. Tina, thanks for joining us on Private Market Talks. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, here we are in beautiful uh, Key Biscayne, Miami, Florida, and it gives us an opportunity to think about geopolitical events from a beautiful environment. It's hard to imagine the world is as complicated and volatile as it is when you're somewhere as lovely as this, but we will give it our best shot. Indeed. So before we dive into geopolitical risks, et cetera, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got into this field? Thank you. I'd love to. Um, I have a very unusual background for someone who's spent over 20 years in, uh, uh, in finance, combining geopolitics, markets, and advising the C-suite. Um, but I think maybe what's important about it is it came 100% from intellectual curiosity and from watching history unfold. And for me, the pivotal event was the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, mm -hmm. when I was doing my undergraduate degree in San Francisco and studying literature. And I thought to myself that this is the most transformational event of my lifetime. And I packed myself off to Prague uh, in 1991, which was as soon as I could get there with um, you know, just a, a tiny bit of money and wanted to observe these um, processes of change, political, social, and economic, after over 50 years, uh, as is the case in East Central Europe, of, of communist rule. And that took me to a, to a career, really, of not only studying these processes, but wanting to help uh, advise and inform investors and business people during this period when, you know, what we used to call emerging markets were booming. So I spent 20 years in, in banking at Citi as the first chief global political um, analyst, uh, a role that I, I pitched to Citi, which didn't exist. 
Uh, and at City, I kind of developed this mission of mine, which is to kind of translate and interpret the world, if that doesn't sound ridiculously ambitious. But I, I'm an American who's been living outside of the United States for most of the last 25 years. Mm. I ended up spending uh, time living in Russia, Azerbaijan, um, and uh, I've been in the UK for over 20 years. And I felt that there was a gap uh, in the in the market and in kind of knowledge, really, as people were pouring into other parts of the world, particularly emerging markets, but also the two-way side uh, of investing. And so the mission of Fordham Global Foresight, the firm that I founded a year ago in the, you know, in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is to raise what I call uh, the PQ of mm -hmm. organizations. We have EQ, obviously, which is enter the management lexicon. We need to raise our PQ. And I don't just mean by being better informed. Um, People don't, I'm not advocating that we all become news junkies, although a lot of people in business love news and current events. It's really about um, doing a better job of understanding these uh, data points, understanding something about history, and really challenging our own perceptions. Sure, and I think you've, you've been advocating as part of investors upping their, as you said, their political quotient you've been advocating a new approach uh, and you've called that fire walking. Can you tell me what that is and how they should do that? <laughs> yes, well, I was inspired uh, by a quote um, from the American poet Charles Bukowski, who said, what you need to do is learn how to walk through the fire. And for all of these years that I've been talking to investors about geopolitical risk, and I also talk a lot about social change, so protests and revolutions, obviously Arab Spring and things like this, the discussion about geopolitics and the social upheaval has really been seen as something in the background that happened in faraway, um, remote, exotic places. Especially to Americans. Yes, especially to Americans who are, you know, inclined toward isolationism, frankly, in, in the best of times. But one of the things that happened during the global financial crisis and then the Eurozone crisis as well was that political risk moved to developed markets. And so that's become the other side of the coin about what I talk to investors about as well, because believe me, the rest of the world is mystified by U.S. politics. Um, deeply. Uh, the number one question I am asked about uh, is, will Trump return? Mm. And if, this is from global investors. And it's not because they'd be very happy about it. And so political risk and understanding PQ has become very much a two-way street and not something that um, uh, is about, you know, understanding exotic places or, you know, the, the kind of, can you find Ukraine or Iraq or Afghanistan on a map, which is how Americans tend to think about it. It's permeated um, everything that we do, and geopolitics has moved to the center stage. Certainly, it, 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 from an investor's perspective, it, it's become not only global, but local in some ways, I would think. Everything that goes on in the world is now affecting us uh, locally. So firewalking. Firewalking, apart from the poem, is you know that, that uh, sort of image of Indian gurus walking barefoot over hot coals, yes. but without getting burned. How do they learn to do that? 
they learn to walk through the fire. And my reference to things happening in you know exotic lands and, and geopolitics moving to the center is really about, we're not going to be able to swerve this set of geopolitical risks that is before us. It's not only the Russian invasion of Ukraine, US-China trade, um, we're looking at massive protests in democracies like Mexico, Israel, uh, etc. Um, and then a big year of elections coming in 2024. We're going to have to learn to walk through that fire. Mm -hmm. And I'm suggesting we can reduce the chances of getting burned if we learn to fire walk. Got it. And so, you know, in the last few years, <clears throat> it has been, uh, the world has been more confrontational, less flat in, in, in some ways. Uh, and what would you say that the big things that investors should pay attention to, where, where should they be looking? Well, in answer to that question, you're probably going to expect me to identify a bunch of markets that are risky that we need to be concerned about. And instead, I'm going to give you a more sort of poli-sci wonk kind of uh, answer. But after all, we're, we're talking to, to lawyers here, so I figure you can take it. Um, one of the things I think that we allowed to happen without paying enough attention to has been the erosion of, of norms and institutions. Um, and just to kind of fast forward how history has accelerated in the last couple of years, we find ourselves taking the US as an example in the unprecedented situation where uh, we don't even have a majority of Americans who believe that the Supreme Court can be trusted. Now, if people don't believe that the judicial branch is trustworthy, you have a big problem. Right. And this didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen because of one administration or another. But we have allowed this to happen. And in as much as the United States um, has been, uh, and to some extent still is, um, you know, a moral authority in, in when it comes to democracy. When this happens in the U.S., it's not surprising that there is a demonstration effect elsewhere. Uh, so the um, uprising over the validity of the elections in Brazil, not surprising. After all, it happened in the United States. It used to only happen in places like Nigeria, right. by the way. If people don't believe uh, in the result of an election, um, democracy is finished. We're not quite there, but the frog boiling, to use you know the very non-technical term, has taken us to a place where we're willing to contemplate and rationalize a lot of developments that would have been unthinkable even a decade ago. You know, to your point, We've seen that in, you've seen it in Israel now, you saw it in Mexico where they're changing the laws on voting. You just saw the demonstrations in Georgia, uh, all to this point where it, it is a follow on from the example of the United States in terms of what's going yes. on here. You can't draw a correlation, but in a sense, a green light has been given. If you don't like the result, uh, you don't agree with the result, to fight it. And by the way, I said before this past U.S. election in, in a Financial Times op-ed that I thought we'd reached a point where um, every U.S. election outcome would be in dispute. 
regardless of, you know, this is not a partisan observation, and that every U.S. president would face impeachment proceedings. Um, and uh, that's exactly what's happening. How did we get there again? It's, the, it's low trust. Low trust is something that has been increasing steadily with each administration. A lot of people in my world and in social and political science point to, um, uh, obviously, to, to tech and the access to more information. Uh, that is complicated, but the effect is, is dramatic. And I think it makes it much more difficult for business leaders and for investors to filter, you know, to your point, what signal, what's noise, or have these relationships all changed? Although you are starting to see some pushback yes. to that. Yeah, and the U.S. midterm result was really welcomed by the rest of the world um, in that the more extreme candidates, with a couple of exceptions, didn't, didn't win. Um, you had relatively high turnout for, for a midterm. And that complacency, which is uh, linked with kind of affluent, stable democracies, was, uh, was put in its place. Yeah, I mean, and you've also seen it, <clears throat> for instance, in Israel, where the tech industry is... I've uh, seen big outflows. Big outflows. The Georgia law was just... Yeah, rescinded, returns, was yeah. rescinded without uh, qualification. So in some sense, that gives me a little hope. <laughs> yes, when, the, when norms are tested and people come out into the streets, I've written about this in the past, I call it, I call it Vox Populi risk, yes. um, written extensively about it. Uh, they're testing the waters. Mm -hmm. um, and the result in, in Georgia, which is a tiny country, but, but quite pivotal in the, in the post-Soviet space, where they tried to pass a, a Russia-style law against civil society NGO organizations, people now are not willing to um, allow these things to go forward. I think in Israel, it's uh, going to get even more dramatic because in these countries, people know that, that democracy is fragile. I think mm -hmm. in the US, we've, we've taken it for granted, but the kind of silent majority, the center has had its mind focused. So zooming out from the political aspect, the international order, generally speaking, is in flux. We've seen a realignment of interests over the last several years, Russia and China being the most prominent among that. And these align the realignments don't always align with economic interests. Um, and sometimes it's more power over, over money in that sense. How does that change the calculus of thinking about geopolitical risks? Well, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which I, I could go on far too long about, but, but I won't, um, has really put the brakes on one of the most important um, kind of themes that has underpinned the professional uh, lives of, of all of us. And that is the notion of kind of globalization, the integration of financial markets, um, the, the convergence toward global norms, mm -hmm. rules of the game, international institutions. That period, which we might say lasted from 1989 until the, the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2007, was the most peaceful and prosperous in all of human history. But we see it as the way that things will always be. Um, that's the kind of normality bias. What's been challenged is that participation in, in, the, in the global system, financial and trade, 
uh, would, would bring peace. The Germans had a term, it was literally peace through commerce. Mm. Um, that's the foundation upon which they proceeded with Nord Stream 1 and 2, the, the pipelines, making themselves and the rest of Europe in the, in the process dependent upon Russian energy supplies because the thinking was, well, that'll, you know, that'll keep us talking and, um, uh, and mutually interdependent. Right. Uh, the scales have now fallen from everyone's eyes. But that leaves a big question about what do we now do with China, where the US-China, the EU-China uh, trade interdependence is much more significant than it ever was with Russia. So there's been an attempt on that relationship to, to put what diplomats call guardrails in. But then we had the balloon incident, um, which kind of was treated as a joke, but it highlights how countries don't control everything. Um, and if you have that low trust and lack of mechanisms for resolving disputes, you end up, you know, having to shoot down balloons over Montana and statements, you know, trolling from uh, the, the state media of, of China saying, look at Americans and, you know, how they can't kind of fight their way out of a, a paper bag. So it's all quite fragile. The system being in flux, does that mean we're headed for World War Three? I mean, if economists love to over-predict recessions, then people in my world love to over-predict World War Three, Cold War, right. you know, the new Cold War, the new hot war, you name it. I think what we have is a lot of jockeying for position and a very scratchy uh, global environment. And if we, we look at what Russia tried to do after it invaded, it tried to restore what we used to call the non-aligned movement during the Cold War, which is to get India, African countries, Latin American countries um, behind it and, and kind of stand up to the United States and the neoliberal order. That hasn't really worked. And just to put a, you know, a, a fine point on it, I think India has been a very interesting country to watch, part of a wider trend that we could call rising middle powers mm that have tried to take a, a nuanced position, meaning they've pushed back on, on Russia and Ukraine, including at the UN Security Council, uh, but that hasn't stopped them from buying cheap Russian gas right. uh, because it's now not going to Europe. Saudi, likewise, has tried to do that, siding with Russia on OPEC, which caused it some problems. And countries in Africa, especially South Africa, frankly, are looking to bid up what they get from the West, which has ignored them for the last 20 years while China has made inroads. So it needs to be understood, I think, as, um, as positioning, as looking for advantage, um, the US continuing to be pivotal, uh, but fighting its own you know, very long standing, as we said at the beginning, isolationist tendencies. Yes, and so what would be key implications of these tectonic shifts that we haven't seen in many, many years to investors and other market participants searching for growth in alpha? Well, you can look where the money is going and, um, and that's fascinating and not surprising, I suppose. Uh, the Gulf is, um, is benefiting uh, and uh, certainly law firms that I talk to are particularly interested in, in the United States, which I've reminded them is uh, 
not, you know, we're not talking about red states and blue states even in America. We're talking about red law firms and blue law firms and insurers and asset managers. It's, a, I think, a more complex market than a lot of firms appreciate. Um, but we have to break our love affair with unitary explanatory narratives. Um, so what do you mean by that? Explain that. China rising, right? China's rising and it's going to eclipse everybody else. Well, as it turns out, it may be that uh, China becomes old before it becomes rich. Mm. That's something that Xi Jinping is very mm. concerned about. But what it reminds us of is that there are very few one-way bets. So now we hear a lot more about um, the China Plus strategy because, after all, Indonesia, the Philippines, you know, South Korea, many huge markets in Asia besides China, which all of that kind of lack of transparency, uh, not to mention the, the COVID aftermath, uh, the sort of decisions taken um, that probably weaken the Chinese leadership. Uh, we did have a period during the pandemic where it became very fashionable to say that China would do a better job during the pandemic because it was autocratic. Right. I hope that has been done away with, but that's exactly what I mean by the kind of rush for these explanatory narratives, you know? Yes, we, well, we experienced that also, I think, during the 70s and 80s when we thought about Japan. Japan, Japan was going to yeah. take over, yeah. Japan buying Rockefeller Center. They did everything better. They yes. did what we did, but just did better. And that proved to be short-lived. Well, whenever I see everybody going the same direction, yes, I, I am. I am the person in the room who says, "Have we, you know, have we thought about this?" the 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 assumption about these these stories is that certain actors are in control of the momentum. I used to work with the World Economic Forum, you know, the Davos people on these huge scenario planning exercises. And they, they just ended up deteriorating into what I thought was just, just fancy, mm. you know, whimsical kinds of um, scenarios uh, that are never going to be right. Um, but that's why I, I'm really interested in unintended consequences as well. So one of the things you have uh, long argued is that market participants and our listeners, being private capital investors, have long-standing bias mm. how to assess political risk. And we've talked about it. You've hinted at it during our conversation. I try to be polite. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd like you to, you know, be a little more explicit. Put out what some of the, you know, if they're out there investing capital, having, having this uh, a clear sense of what these either blind spots or biases might be are the only way to, to really overcome it. And so, or at least be aware of it. So could you know, yes. what, what would you say some of those are? Well, th this comes from 25 years of conversations with people who are very intelligent, highly educated, access not only to every type of expertise and information, but to, you know, powers that be members of the elite and everything else. And what has kind of blown my mind, uh, we, could, we could call it heuristics, um, which is the kind of shortcuts that we all take uh, as humans to make sense of an incredibly complex environment. Um, it got to the point where if I was talking to investors about Europe uh, in the United States, the entire conversation 
9.5 times out of 10 was about when the European Union was going to break up mm -hmm. and they couldn't be convinced otherwise. Uh, this is what I mean, that it couldn't possibly work and so it was doomed to fail. Along comes something like the pandemic, uh, one particular type of crisis, followed by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and with the kind of car crash that was Brexit thrown into the mix, you know, cohesion in the European Union is at a, a recent all-time high. Um, we need new heuristics. Um, binary thinking is another one. You know, let's take those attitudes toward China. China's on a one-way rise, perhaps with some bumps in the road. Or globalization is dead. Now, people in my world who write those stories and papers get a lot more attention than someone like me who's being nuanced and balanced and, and everything right. else. But the reality is that the most dramatic outcome rarely occurs. Um, and so when you're in a room with your leadership team um, or your practice group, um, it tends to be the loudest person who wins the argument. Mm. <laughs> uh, and we, whether it's about geopolitics or, or anything else. Uh, and I suppose that's why I think I became exasperated and thought, it almost doesn't matter what what experts say if people aren't ready to believe it and right. and it's also why I advocate stress testing for plausible scenarios rather than the more conventional approach which is base case and tail risks hmm. tail risks is moved to the center interesting this sort of is full circle to what you were saying at the beginning of this conversation it, it dovetails with the idea of being firewalking as opposed to binary yes. thinking. Or we'll just avoid the risk because we won't work in that jurisdiction. I talk about zeitgeist leadership, which is um, a famous Harvard Business School case study, and how CEOs who manage through the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, end up being the most successful CEOs not the ones who are the best at understanding their product or their business. And our zeitgeist in this period is by no means all bad news unless you are unlucky enough to be in one of the war zones, God forbid, because adversity often produces some interesting unintended consequences and, and byproducts in the human experience. But we can't just be in denial, be avoidant, and think it has nothing to do with us. You know, Trotsky said, you may not believe in, in um, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. And I think that's kind of where we are. To put a finer point on it, what would be the, say, top three themes or geopolitical risks to keep in mind as investors are looking, for, are looking forward? I think that um, technology is going to be a hugely double-edged sword. Um, the advent of chat GPT, the generative technology, has made huge waves. A lot of people are going to get very rich from chat GPT. But why I am interested in it, apart from the philosophical side of it, which is language and thinking are so intertwined in the human experience, it's not just pattern recognition um, that you know, that allows us to, to talk, which is what ChatGPT does. ChatGPT is going to put a lot of people out of work who've never been previously uh, touched by automation. And I really worry that our 
fearless leaders in government around the world are too removed from technology to start with to appreciate what the likely socioeconomic consequences are going to be. I mean, after all, look at the, the kind of rust belt and uh, the deindustrialization, which displaced older generations. Yes. Chat GPT is coming for your kids mm. and their jobs with all that university education that you paid for. And I don't think it's going to go over uh, all that well. Yeah, and certainly when you talk about how our fearless leaders aren't technologically up to speed to deal with chat GPT, they haven't even caught up to the internet yet. They haven't even figured out Facebook. I'll never, <laughs> never forget Mark Zuckerberg testifying and being asked by a member of Congress, how do you make your money? And he said, we sell ad space, sir. Yes, yes. Um, so investors out there trying to figure out how to assess geopolitical risk, get a little smarter in this area. What what books would you, or a book would you recommend that they, they read? My favorite book, actually, that I, I recommend to, to investors who, who want to kind of broaden their thinking is actually not, not particularly about politics or geopolitics. It's Factfulness by Dr. Hans Rosling, who is a medical doctor um, who developed some fascinating ways of thinking about problems. At the beginning of Factfulness, he starts with a quiz and if I could, I would, I would give this quiz at the start of all my presentations, because again, you know, we're talking to highly educated, very competent, sophisticated people, but they get more than half of these questions wrong. Why? It's related to our discussion about heuristics, because they're more or less applying massively outdated, uh, stereotypical thinking. Um, to, to problems. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but it's, it's great fun uh, because it, to me, uh, is the most effective way at sort of exposing how, despite how well-read we are and how much we invest in current affairs, our minds just keep us in, in old ways of thinking unless we actively fight against it. So read Factfulness by Dr. Hans Rosling. And I, a more, more recent relevance um, is an incredible book by um, lawyer and scholar Philippe Sands called East West Street, which is about one street uh, in present day Ukraine where two sort of legendary lawyers who came up, came up with the terms genocide uh, and, and were instrumental in the Nuremberg trials. They didn't know each other, mm. but they came from this one tiny microcosm in Ukraine. It is uh, fascinating and, um, uh, and how hard they had to fight to get this on the agenda at Nuremberg, by the way, because the concept of genocide didn't exist. Mm. We'll post the names of those books in the show notes. Well, we can we can have a book club because uh, <laughs> I, I guarantee you know you can't read those books without kind of uh, being almost dumbfounded. I, I I couldn't read fast enough. There's a new book out as well by the historian Peter Frankopan. What is it called? It's I think it's called Earth: A History. It is huge, really? but he wrote the Silk Roads. Uh, a oh, lot yes, of people yes, will yes. remember, and yes. he is a tremendous scholar. But yeah, I mean, if I were to draw together what we've talked about over the course of this conversation, 
I think the way that we were all taught in school, um, which is to be specialists and not generalists, has not helped us be prepared for, for, the, for the, the present moment. When connecting the dots, pattern recognition, you could say, but across disciplines is super useful. Mm. But we're siloed, we live in echo chambers, uh, it's more comfortable that way, I think. Uh, again, this is all sort of human psychology. We don't mix with people who think differently. And now we don't have the tools. But I mean, the good news is that we, we, can, we, can, we can learn to fire walk, we can broaden our horizons, uh, and we can tone down some of this noise. Well, listen, thank you for joining us. Uh, I have just one last question for you. And this is sort of a, a, a prediction question, but one that is that that requires the not obvious, and that is, you know, if if you put yourself five years in the future, looking back, what geopolitical event that might occur would surprise you? Of course, if I think I'm any good at my job, I would say you, there would be none. Very, very, <laughs> very little would surprise me, but but that also wouldn't be wouldn't be true. I have to think, I suppose, because you know, believe it or not, with someone who spends their waking hours scanning the horizon for risks, that um, some some positive things must come out of this horrendous 20th century style conflict in in Ukraine. I talked to a lot of military people in my work and even people who had access to the best intelligence and knew that he was preparing for that combat were in shock that it would go forward. But if we take a, a historical perspective, um, these periods of, uh, of, of conflict and the intense development in, in the uh, defense and security sectors, I think will, will lead to technological breakthroughs that will ultimately be be good for humanity, um, you know, medical, scientific, and otherwise, because that we have seen that happen in history after World War II. You know, I come from the Silicon Valley where yeah. the defense industry was uh, was based. It led to a huge period of of innovation. Um, something more prosaic. Uh, would I be surprised? I would be surprised if the girls. Um, and they are girls in Iran were successful in overturning the mullahs because the mullahs have all of the all of the security apparatus and all the power of the state. Um, but I would be pleasantly surprised. Well, I'm I'm hoping that uh, that some of these uh, surprises do occur. Uh, and I want to thank you for joining us on Private Market Talks today. Thank you for having me.